Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy way. Uh, according to thy word, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Well, before we get started tonight, we need to make sure we're in fellowship so that we can uh, focus on the word under the teaching ministry of uh, God the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches that whenever we sin, that fellowship is broken, that sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit is shut down. It is no longer uh, functioning to produce spiritual growth. So we have to uh, recover, and that is simply done through uh, confession of sin, admission of our sin to God the Father in the privacy of our priesthood, and at that instant... uh, We are forgiven, cleansed, the walk by the Spirit is resumed, our spiritual growth resumes, and we can then go go forward in the Christian life. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, it is such a wonderful blessing that we have that we are able to gather together to study your word as a body of believers, that we can uh, encourage and strengthen one another in so many different ways as, as members of the body of Christ, members of one another. Father, we pray that as we continue our study uh, <clears throat> going through the New Testament in terms of all of these passages that talk about the Uh, mutual interconnectedness of believers within the body and our responsibilities towards one another and challenges that we face in uh, interacting with other believers. We pray that the Holy Spirit would just make this clear to us as we think in terms of our own uh, sphere of living and relationships that we can be properly uh, challenged, properly objective about our own lives and our own relationships, that we can put these things into practice and be a living witness to your grace, your glory, and your plan. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, in the last uh, several lessons, we've been going through the doctrine of one another. Last time, we got up to about the 14th point, so I'll just quickly review the last four for those of you who uh, weren't here the last time. If I took time going all the way back to point one, we'd never get to the end of this. We're to serve one another through love, Galatians 5.13. Now, what's important, as we look at all of these points, I keep coming back to this because it is just foundational to understand this, is all of these are different facets of love, what it means to love one another as Christ loved us. John 13.34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. And so the more we think about that, that model, that pattern that Jesus Christ gave us on the cross and in terms of his love for us, the more then that we can come to understand what it is that we are to do toward one another and that that's not based on who the other person is. It's so often we are prone to react to people. We're prone to treat them on the basis of how they've treated us. We need to rise above that and treat people on the basis of who God is and what Christ did on the cross. That's the pattern. Again and again we see, uh, as we do in so many of these passages, that that pattern is Jesus Christ to do it as uh, Christ loved us. For example, we saw last time in the series of verses that deal with forgiveness. We're to be kind to one another, forgiving one another. Forgiveness is that act of kindness 
towards other believers. Just think how it is when we mess up. We know we've offended somebody. We know we've hurt someone's feelings. We know that we have done things that have irritated, angered them. And what a relief that is when we know that we have forgiveness. Well, forgiveness is a two-way road, and we need to be ready to forgive uh, others just as we have been forgiven in Christ. And so we looked at key passages that emphasize this, the whole uh, uh, illustration that the Lord gave as he washed the disciples' feet wasn't to teach being a servant, but being, but serving one another through forgiveness. And Jesus said, as I have done this to you, you should wash each other's feet. And the point there was uh, confession, or rather cleansing, uh, from sin. So we look at John 13, also Ephesians 4:32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now I want you to open your Bibles now to Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 32. We have never, uh, we have never, or I've never taught through Ephesians. That's one of the things that we have to look forward to in the next 10 years is to look at Ephesians and Colossians to get into Acts and Romans and probably Matthew. I just might have enough things figured out eventually to teach Matthew. Matthew's, again, one of the toughest uh, toughest books to teach because of a num- the parables or a number of other things that relate to uh, dispensational issues, issues between Israel and the church, and so that's a, a tremendous challenge. But <clears throat> Ephesians is a rather simply structured book. If you look at it as a whole, you've got two sections, the, the first three chapters and the last three chapters, and the first three chapters are more instructive. They're, they're didactic. They're unpacking all that God has done for us in Christ. And so there's tremendous theology there that you have to understand before you can understand the application which comes in the second half of the uh, of, of the epistle. We were kind of laughing about this this morning on Thursday mornings, as I've told you before. I meet with a group of pastors. We usually have anywhere from three to five here locally and then via video conferencing using Skype or some other uh, other Internet tool, we have as, sometimes as many as four or five. We had five this morning uh, from around the country, from Tucson to Maryland and Ohio and uh, northern, uh, northern Virginia. So we had uh, quite a group, and we were talking about a number of different things. And one of the men that was here locally commented, about the uh, problem that you've heard me complain about before is just the biblical and historical ignorance of of Christians today. Not necessarily this congregation, but it's true for us. It's true for me because we are the products of our glorious public education, government-sponsored education system, and our education has been so uh, diluted over the last hundred years that we just don't know things. Those of you who managed to gut it out on Tuesday night when I spent an hour just going through Middle Eastern history during the uh, 3rd and 4th centuries B.C., that we were never taught in school at any time, even uh, even though I had a history major in, uh, in college, no one ever talked about those things. You're more concerned about the great empires. You're more concerned about Alexander the Great or the Egyptians or, or of course, Rome. And nobody spends any time on, on many of these other things, not to mention uh, the fact that we don't ever study history related to India or China or Japan. There's just these huge gaps, uh, gaps in our knowledge. But when it comes to understanding the Bible, there are so many areas in Scripture that, that where the, a whole chapter is just built on history. And if you don't understand the details, all the nuts and bolts of the historical events that were occurring 
300, 400 years before Christ or 1,500 years before Christ, then you can never understand the application. You have to understand what is actually being said in the Scripture before you ever get to the point where you can answer the question, well, now that I understand the what, now I need to answer the question, how does this apply to me? And that's just history. When you get into Romans and you get into Ephesians and Colossians and you have these tremendous chapters where Paul just stacks clause upon clause upon clause using words he coins to put together these great biblical theological doctrines. And he does this, for for example, in Ephesians for three chapters, that if you don't understand chapters 1 through 3, you can't really understand why he says what he says in chapters 4 through 6. And But we live in a world today when people say, well, don't tell me all that stuff in 1 through 3. That just I just get all confused. I don't want to think about that kind of stuff. I just want to know how to live so I can have a happy marriage and not be in debt, and I'll raise good kids, and, and they'll do what I want them to do. And And we don't understand that you can't get to that without understanding that it flows out of a framework of thinking. And if we don't understand that framework of thinking about reality as it is as God has defined it, then we won't understand how to make the nuts and bolts decisions that we all have to make as we live our lives. As you're a parent, you're raising your children, and a situation occurs, and and they come to you with a question, there's a conflict, there's a an issue related to discipline of children or just teaching them, you can't call me up on the phone or send me a quick email and say, okay, what do I say? You know, that has to come from this reservoir of doctrine that is in your soul, that that you're able then through the Holy Spirit to put these things together that you've learned and then have wisdom to answer uh, questions for your children or if you're in a situation where you're witnessing to somebody to be able to uh, address questions that they raise or just in terms of conflicts or problems that come up in your own life and in work, ethical conflicts that uh, may, may arise or in dealing with people, personnel at work, whatever that may be, it, that those decisions that you make really flow out of a way of thinking that gets built into our souls by a study of of the Word. And it doesn't just happen overnight. It doesn't just happen in an instant. And we have to study these things. Well, you know, we had a great example, I think, Tuesday night in uh, (coughs) hacking our way through uh, the eighth chapter Eighth chapter of Daniel, and then you can, num- there's a number of other chapters like that in, in the prophets, where you, unless you really understand all of this ancient history and what was happening then, you never can get to the real application. Same thing happens when we get into Ephesians. So we're going to be looking at several things from Ephesians 4 through 6 tonight as more of a global, um, a global survey, but it helps to put things together. I think from our background, so often we're used to looking at scriptures through a microscopic uh, analytical tool that we lose the broader uh, perspective, the broader context, the connection that, that verses are part of sentences, sentences are part of paragraphs, and those paragraphs fit within a thought structure. And so we not only have to do the analysis, but we also have to do the broader, uh, the broader look from a synthetic point of view where you put things uh, put things together. And there are several of these one another passages that we're studying that are found in Ephesians 4 and in Ephesians 5. So we're to be kind to one another, forgiving each other, Ephesians 4.32. And just so you see where I'm going while I'm here right now, if you look at Ephesians 4.32, we, it reads, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted." forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, the problem is that we tend to stop there because what happens next? There's a chapter break, 
And in most of our Bibles, there's not only a chapter break, but the editors have put a chapter heading in there or some sort of summary, or there's an outline heading that's placed in there, maybe a couple of different lines. If I think Ryrie Study Bible has an outline, so you might have a, a Roman numeral break and then a subcategory break. But it, 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 the way we read that, it looks like there's a break in Paul's thinking. But in the original, none of that was there, no verse breaks. No chapter breaks. And if you read it without the chapter break, it reads that we're to be be kind to one another, tenderhearted by forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. That next command in 5.1, to be imitators of God, is often taken just in isolation, just right out of context. We start there. But the imitate, being an imitator of God is connected to the act of forgiveness in verse 32. And then that is connected to verse 2, which is to walk in love. How? Here we get that pattern again. As Christ also has loved us and given himself as a substitute for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet aroma. And then... Uh, the text goes on. So being kind to one another and forgiving each other is a manifestation of God's character. That's what the Holy Spirit produces in us. Now, of course, the question is, how in the world does the Holy Spirit produce this character in us? And we, I started on that last time, and I want to come back to address it some more tonight. So just skipping ahead here, we get to um, another verse we looked at was Colossians 3.13 forgiving as Christ forgave you. Then uh, our 13th point was we're to bear one another's burdens. Uh, bearing one another's is used uh, metaphorically, uh, the idea of lifting something, carrying someone. It is part of loving your neighbor. It is part of helping them go through difficult times in life, and you do that in different ways, in prayer, in comments that we make as we as we encourage uh, one another. Now, I want to stop there a minute because we had another interesting conversation this morning talking about encouraging one another. We looked at that those verses earlier in our study, and we were talking. Uh, I was talking with two or three other pastors, and we were we were just thinking about different ways in which we come together as a body of believers to encourage one another. And one way we encourage people, and we encourage one another in the body of Christ, is just by being in Bible class. You never thought about it that way. See, most of us think, and I know I know, I did, I'm going to go to Bible class because of what I'm going to learn tonight, and I'm going to be able to grow spiritually. But by being in, physically present in Bible class, it is an encouragement, first of all, towards a pastor. Now, I, don't, I haven't, I'm not prone to this problem. I know some pastors aren't. Some pa- pastors are in discouraging circumstances. I uh Heard of a guy this last week who's got his, his congregation's down to about 16 people. They're all, I think they're all qualified for Social Security, and three-quarters of them are women. And they're in a uh, little church on the east side of Houston, and they've been surrounded basically by a Hispanic community, and they've just been been isolated and, and left there. And in order to make uh, bills pay, they've rented the church out to two different uh, Hispanic or Spanish-speaking churches, which is a great thing to do, but it's just it's just a struggle. And this guy just feels so so defeated in his ministry because of what has hap- happened to to the congregation. And we all know that that um, we can have pride and arrogance can enter into this, but but that's not what I'm talking about. Those are the negative sides. As a pastor, or as anybody who gets up in front of people and speaks. There is a, um, it's a lot more stimulating, it's a lot more encouraging to look out on a crowd of 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000 than it is to look out on 15 or 20. But there's, there are dynamics that happen here. When you've got a, if, if we had 100 people showing up here every Tuesday night or Thursday night, it generates a, uh, an unintended consequence of encouragement. It creates, there's an energy that happens that takes place when you have a, a full house of people. If you, uh, I've talked to people who've had a background in theater, and you look at somebody who's uh, an actor who's going through rehearsal, 
and they're rehearsing the play, and there's no audience out there, and there's there's one level of energy, and they part of their uh, their inner makeup is to you know to reach inside themselves and pull up that energy level. Some nights they can have a full house, but it's a negative crowd. They can just sense that. And they just know, man, we got a dead house out there. They just try everything. If it's a comedy, you know, jokes are falling flat, um, things like that. And then other nights, it's just a different crowd of people, and there's an energy that comes out of the crowd that that the uh, players will will work off of, and it just sort of drives them to uh, greater. Uh, skill and greater heights in their own in their own acting, and the same thing can happen uh, as a pastor. I never forget some of the first times that I spoke at a black church. Now, I'm not saying y'all need to be saying amen and creating a dialogue in that because that's their culture. But it is it was after I got past the fact that there's a dialogue going on, and you're going to say something, and you're going to hear several people respond and and dealing with the concentration issues, after a while you realize that they're really paying attention to you. And what they're saying is what you have just said, and it is a way of repeating back. It's a way of learning and concentrating on what the pastor is saying. But it also creates an energy level that as a pastor you start feeding feeding off of. And when that energy level is pumping you, your, your brain's working faster. Uh, you're you're getting more into what you're talking about. They're getting more into what you're talking about, and it just creates a uh, a, a great environment for communication. But if you're standing up here and you're talking to people who got up at five o'clock this morning, spent an hour in the gym or out jogging, and then they had a thirty or forty-five minute commute to work, and they worked all day and they dealt with all kinds of problems, and they barely made it to Bible class, haven't even been home yet, and the first time they sit down all day long, and you know who I'm talking about, you know who you are. First time you sit down all day and just rest is at eight o'clock at night at Bible class, and by eight ten you're taking taking a really good nap. <laughs> and I've done that too when I, when I have sat out in the pew because that's, that's just a normal, natural thing. And I never take offense. I'm just glad that, that finally you're getting a little rest for the day and, and you can relax. But it makes it more difficult as a communicator to be up front and try to, you know, pull everybody up and get everybody excited or, or interested or concentrating, especially when you're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes or something like that that happened uh, that's not even really dealing with the Bible per se, but you have to spend so much time to get people to just the point where you can talk about application that, you, you, oh, oh, wait a minute, we're out of time now. We'll get to the application next week. Next week it's a slightly different crowd. You've lost them. That's just what happens. So there's there's different energy level that goes on, visual feedback. I can When I look at people and see one of the things that we're losing a little bit of, I don't, and I have no idea how much this is, but I know that there are there are people who live within 20 miles of West Houston Bible Church who could be here tonight, but they're not. Now, some of them have legitimate reasons. Some of them can't drive at night. Some of them uh, are more homebound. Others are, are sick, or they just, because of their work job commitment, they just, they just can't do it all. I understand that when it's legitimate. But there are other people who... Uh, yield to the temptation to say, you know, it's just a lot easier to stay home and catch it on live streaming. And so I'm going to do that. Uh, but, see, if, there's, if there were only 20 people here tonight, then what would happen is we would kind of look around and go, boy, wouldn't it be nice if there were 60 people here tonight? You know, and when there's more people here, it seems like there's a little bit more of an of an energy going on, and we're encouraged. Look, there's other people like me who want to know the word. Let's say we have a visitor that comes in. Visitor comes in some night, especially during the summer. Sometimes we can get crowd can get a little low. And let's say he came in, there were ten people here. What what, what goes through your mind when you go to a church, seats two hundred people, and you see ten people there? Well, I guess this isn't very good. I guess it's it's not very important. I guess I really don't need to be here. There's just a few people here, so this must not be a good thing to be be in. But you walk in and there's, you know, 
80 people, 100 people, 200 people, depending on the size of the auditorium, you can have you have a good group there, and the what you pick up is that this is something important. I need to be here. Now, there may be 20 people here, and we may have 500 people in Houston all listening on live streaming. But we don't know that. I don't know that. I don't see them. So I don't get any feedback off of that. You don't see them. You don't get any feedback over that. So there's something that is important that's non-tangible just about being present in Bible class because it encourages other people because your presence encourages the pastor. So we we can encourage one another just by our physical presence. Also, when we see when we grow as believers, we go through different stages of growth. I'll never forget the time. This was sometime I I moved back to Houston in 91. I'd been already, you know, gone through my master's work at Dallas, gone through doctoral work at Dallas, published a book, uh, all of these things. I moved back to Dallas, and I'm sitting in the pew in Bible class one night, and I thought, you know, I'm not really learning anything new. I've heard all this before. I've heard sometimes, you know, I've heard better people. I've heard people teach it better. I've heard this man teach it better. You know, you, all these thoughts go on. You've said the same thing when you've listened to me, I'm sure. And you've heard, well, you know, I just heard a tape from something I listened to, and he was teaching the same doctrine, so you just tune out. We all do that at times. There's a lot of repetition if you're a pastor because you're trying to remind people, encourage people. But when we go through growth stages, when you're a baby believer, and if you're really hungry, think about this back when you first started getting excited about learning the Bible. What drove you to Bible class? not your car, not your mother. What drove you was something internal. You wanted to learn what the Bible said. You had specific questions. You might not have clarified them or focused on them so much, but you had specific questions that you wanted answered about your life. What does God want me to do? Who does God want me to marry? Uh, what does God want me to give, do, do with my career, do with my life? Where should I live? Uh, what, how do I really know Jesus is God? How do I witness to people? Uh, what about the heathen? You, know, you have doctrinal questions, you have practical questions, you have all these kind of questions. Well, you've been sitting in Bible class. Some of you have been sitting in Bible class for 1,500 hours, 2,000 hours, 3,000 hours. A lot of those questions that you wanted to have answered, God answered within the first 10 or 15 years. What happens with a lot of people that you no longer see sitting in church is that they didn't make the transition in growth maturity. Because what happens is your motivation has to change. Initially, like a, like a newborn, you're driven more by, I want to get fed and I want to get fed now. You're just screaming for, for milk and for, for nourishment. But as you, as, a, as in the physical life, when you hit those adolescent years, something is driving you other than just putting food in your mouth. Some of you still need to take that by faith, I'm sure. But something is driving you other than just putting, putting food in your mouth. And it has to do with, with now I'm, I'm a little more concerned about putting good food in my mouth or just utilizing it better. And you see adolescents, and all of a sudden they start getting interested in exercise and uh, sports, different things uh, of that nature, and utilizing what they have uh, what, what they have physically in a, in a better way. And the same kind of thing happens spiritually. You get, reach that stage where most of your questions are, are answered, so you're not coming. It's not that you're saying, oh, I know it all. But when you come to Bible class, it's not so much because you're, you're hungering and thirsting to get answers and to learn more about the Bible because you feel like you're getting, a, you're getting a pretty good handle on this. But you're coming because you're beginning to understand who God is and what he expects of you. And the motivation isn't, I want to get fed. The motivation is I need to learn more about God, and the, the, there's a shift that occurs there. You want to learn more about God, and you want to learn how to live in order to maximize your spiritual life, which means you realize you're here to serve God, and that, that is what needs to be, be driving you and motivating you. 
A lot of people don't make that don't make that shift. Another thing that happens as you reach that stage is you realize that you're not really there because you're trying to find out the answers to certain things as much as you need to be reminded that of the promises of God, that God cares, that no matter how uh, bad things may appear in the world, no matter what kind of disasters or adversities that you're going through, you're just reminded that God still has a plan. God still cares about you. God still ha- is faithful to his word and faithful to his promises, and doctrine works. And if you just hear that every night, somehow you're going to make it through whatever it is that you're going through right now. So that, that motivation that motivation shifts, and it's in that context that we uh, encourage one another just by being in the Word, just by being there, and by wa- and we see other people, other people grow and mature. Some of you have been around others in this congregation long enough to where you have seen tremendous spiritual growth in other people in this congregation, and they see the same thing in you, and that is a way in which we encourage encourage one another. So we looked at 11, 12, 13, 14 was that we were to show uh, tolerance uh, for one another, Ephesians 4, 2. Now, I want you to, as we lead into where I'm going, I want you to turn to Ephesians 4, 1. Because Ephesians 4, 2 doesn't operate in a vacuum. The emphasis here is, of course, that we are to bear with one another, which means to show tolerance or put up with one another's uh, weaknesses. It's the Greek word there, uh, on echo, to endure patiently. It's used both in Ephesians 4.2 and in Colossians uh, 3.13, where it's stated bearing with one another, putting up with one another's failures, and forgiving one another. But Ephesians 4.2, it flows out of the previous sentence and is part of a sentence that extends down through several verses. Verse 1 reads, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, which means he's begging, he is challenging them. I think is a better word in our context. He's challenging them to walk worthy of the calling with which they were called. Now, the main verb there is to walk. Now, this word to walk is used six times in the next two and a half chapters, in chapter 4, chapter 5, and now through the first part of chapter 6, this word walking is repeated several times so that the theme of chapters 4 through 6 is really talking about walking. You walk in chapter 4, you walk in chapter 5 until you get down to the armor of God, and then what do you do? You stand. So there's a important shift there. You walk, you walk, you walk, and then you stand in Christ. The walking is talking about lifestyle. It was a a metaphor for how a person lived their life and what characterized their life. And so this, this governs everything that is said in these three chapters is a description of the Christian lifestyle and what is to characterize the Christian lifestyle. Now, if we think about other passages we've, we've gone to, uh, for example, we are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16. So this idea of walking is fundamental metaphor that Paul uses in order to communicate and to illustrate the Christian, the Christian life. So I'm going to skip ahead through these next couple of slides here till we get to 16. Is that right? Did I skip one? Where did I skip? Who's got 15? Anybody? Or did I just leave it out? See, I don't have, I always, numbers aren't my spiritual gift. Okay, so I'll correct that for next time. So this would be 15. We're to submit to one another. This is where I stopped last time because the command to submit to one another is part of that Christian walk. And Ephesians 5.21. But 5.21 comes in a context. And this is one of the most important sections, I think, of the New Testament. And it really starts, I mean, actually it starts in the first part of chapter 4, but this subsection, I think, really begins in verse 17. Uh, 
where we read in Ephesians 4.17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should what? Two times we have the word walk. That you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. So there's a negative there. It's not painting a positive picture. It's painting a negative picture. This is how the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding uh, darkened, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with, with, with greediness. But you have not learned Christ in this way. So it, the context is walking, and then we come to Ephesians 5.2, um, and we have another use of walk, that we are to walk in love. Now, on this slide, what I've done is to set up the verses from Ephesians 4.32 down through, down through 5.2 and taking out the verse and chapter marks so we can read it in, 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 in its original context. And with the original flow, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Remember that word for forgiving there is charizomai, meaning being gracious. But charizomai is frequently used not only as a synonym for for afiemi, which is the verb form for forgiveness, but it's even used in one of the parables that we looked at one time as a, a, a canceling of debt. So charizomai and, and uh, afiemi had a, a large overlap of meaning related to forgiveness, the canceling of debt, removal of debt, removing of a past injury. So be kind to one another, tenderhearted, being gracious toward one another in forgiveness, even as God in Christ forgave you, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Doing the same thing, in other words, and walk in love. So we're to be imitators of God and walk in love. Now, at the bottom of the screen, I put the Greek term. It's in agape. The in is the Greek preposition plus the dative form of the uh, verb for, for love. And in these contexts, it makes more sense to understand the end there in an instrumental sense rather than in what, it, what grammarians call a locative sense. Those are the two basic meanings that you have for, for the preposition in. Now, if you look down to um, verse 5, it says, uh, For this you know that no... Fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Same kind of, same preposition, in. But when I say in the kingdom, we think of kingdom in terms of a location, don't we? We think of that as a space. You are in a, an environment. You're in a location. You're in the kingdom. You're in a time period. So that has that, that idea that grammarians call locative. What happens is you get a lot of, a uh, certain number of, of scholars and theologians who will look at these passages like walking in the Spirit, being filled in the Spirit, because it uses the same Greek phrase, baptized in the Spirit. They try to make that locative as well. But when I say walk in love, how do you walk in a location of love? Now, what we hear is that what this, we, we, we hear the sense of that and we say, okay, this has something to do with what should characterize the walk. But what do you, how do you, grammatically, how would you understand walking in that sphere? How do you get out of that sphere? It just, it's a mystical idea. And the same thing with walking in the spirit. Who I'm in the spirit. And I always think, well, you know, you feel something. You've got some kind of buzz going on. How do you know that you're in the spirit, what does that mean? How, do, what is that, how does that do anything? It's not a, the Holy Spirit isn't a location. Being in Christ, that's a location. You're in the body of Christ. But being in the spirit or being in love, in this sense walking in love, isn't a locative idea. It is a tool 
an instrument for accomplishing something. We walk by means of the Spirit. The Spirit is the instrument or the means by which the lifestyle is accomplished. Love is the, viewed as the instrument or the means by which walk, this walk is accomplished so that we have a, a more concrete idea of what that phrase means. It doesn't get into this kind of loosey-goosey, quasi-mystical sort of idea. And in my mind, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. Now, that's a subjective call. You don't have anything in the grammar that says it's this or it's this. It can't, the word can be used either way. You just have to analyze it in terms of thinking about its, its meaning and its sense of operation there for it to make sense. So we walk by means of love as we live by means of implementing uh, the commands to love, which is a mental attitude and not a uh, an emotion, and its pattern on Christ's behavior, then maturity and spiritual growth takes place. In doing that, by walking by means of love, what are we doing? We're fulfilling the initial command in 5.1. We're being an imitator of Christ. Now, we're looking at the don't I don't want you to lose the force for the trees here or think I've just run off down some rabbit trail and I don't know where I'm going. Verse 32 says that we're to be forgiving one another. Then when we get down to uh, verse 21, we're submitting to one another. Now what happens between those two one another's describes in crucial elements of the Christian life, the spiritual life of how we walk. And that's what governs that that command to walk. That's what governs this whole section of Ephesians. You have the word used in walking in Ephesians 4.1, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. You twice in verse 4.17, don't walk as the Gentiles walk. It's used in 5.2, walk in love. In verse 8, 5.8, we're to walk as children of light. Uh, 5.15, we have the command, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. So the command is we're to walk in as, as wise or walk in wisdom. And this, this is the, that's the main idea that we have in these two chapters. And so all these other commands, all the other characteristics and descriptions are, are there in order to flesh out what this lifestyle uh, looks like. Now, the key in all of this comes in verse uh, 18 of chapter 5, which is where I stopped last time in Ephesians 5.18. The command there being, don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the, in the Greek text, with wine and with the Holy Spirit translate the same sort of instrumental clause, you have that phrase in pneumatee. Now, this is where you get into some, some confusion in how Greek is translated into English. You have this, this preposition in the Greek, en, pronounced in just like the English preposition in. And if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, you'll see that you have options. You can translate it in which would have sort of a locative idea. You put the coffee in the cup. You have with. That's an association, associative idea. Uh, I went to the movies with my wife. So you have this association together. Or you can say, I, I dug the hole uh, with the shovel. Well, the shovel is the instrument that you use to dig the hole. But in Greek, it would, you could express each of those ideas with the same preposition. In English, we have these three different prepositions that we use, in, with, or by. And as native English speakers, when we hear that, our mind immediately, without any conscious thought whatsoever, we discern the difference in the sense of the, that, those three different prepositions. Now, let me show you why this would create great confusion in the church. In the, in the Gospels... In the Gospels, John the Baptist came along and he says, I'm baptizing you with water. 
in hudity? Is he saying, I'm baptizing you in the water? Is he saying, I'm baptizing you with, along with water? Is he saying, I'm baptizing you by using water? You have to factor that in. He says, well, one who's going to come after me, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. So the in is translated with. Now, that gives some people a certain idea that, uh, of how they understand that baptism with the Spirit. Then you come along to 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and Paul says, For by one Spirit we're baptized into one body. That sounds different, doesn't it? By the Spirit versus with the Spirit. Sounds like two different things. But in Greek, it's the exact same phrase, and it's talking about the exact same thing. Because you had one translator translating in one area. You had another translator translating in another area. One guy preferred with, the other guy preferred by. In English, it looks like two different baptisms. So Pentecostals came along and said, these are two different baptisms, one you get when you're saved and one you get after you're saved. You start doing the Christian two-step. You get part of the Spirit when you're saved, and you get another part when you get dedicated, when you walk the aisle, when you speak in tongues. So you get Christian two-steppers. thought that started with, with Texas dancing, but it didn't. Now, the reason that's important is when you look at Ephesians 5.18, We've got to decide what this means to be filled with the Spirit. And let me use the example of a, I don't have one up here, coffee cup. You can fill the coffee cup with coffee or with orange juice or with water, whatever, but what are you talking about? You're talking about the content of what goes into the cup. Now, some people have that idea of what this means to be filled with the Spirit, that somehow I get more of the Spirit, and that's what we're to do. We're to get more of the Spirit. That's one approach. We could also understand that to mean an instrument. In other words, we're not talking about what goes into the cup. We're talking about what is used to fill the cup up with something else. So we would say, fill my coffee cup with what's in that pot. You know, we want the decaf and not the other. So fill it up with what's in that pot. So that would indicate the instrument that is used to fill it up. That's an important distinction. If you take the first view that this is content, you have another problem because this is, in the Greek, this is expressed with a dative case, and content is never expressed by the dative. So you're not getting more of the Spirit. Some people think that way. When I confess my sins, that somehow I'm getting more of the Spirit in me. That's not what this is saying. It's an operational verse. It's not a content verse. As I pointed out last time, another problem that I think has entered into the misunderstanding of this verse is the initial part, which says, don't be drunk with wine. Now, if we understand that to be instrument and not content, then it changes the focus, and we're not going to be as prone to think this is talking about control as influence or instrument, the the tool that's used to become close to the God. And I pointed out last time that in the ancient world, in Ephesus, as well as other areas in Greece, but in Ephesus it was, it was prominent. We often think of Artemis of the Ephesians, the many-breasted goddess who was there because of the uh, problem that occurred with the silversmiths, as, as Paul and uh, Timothy and others taught the gospel, and people quit worshiping the false idol of, of uh, Artemis there. And that was big business for the silversmiths because they made all these little bitty uh, statues, uh, in, uh, representatives of, of the idol of, uh, of Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. Then the silversmiths were losing business. Christianity was bad for their business because people quit buying what they were, uh, what they were making. 
So that was one religion that was there. But another one that was prominent throughout this whole area was the worship of Dionysius. And that was part of the uh, mystery religions. And Dionysius really had its origin, the origin of the worship of that god, came out of that area of Turkey. Dionysius wasn't a Greek god. He was borrowed from the, those who lived over in Anatolia. And so that got, he got absorbed into the pantheon of the Greeks uh, sometime way back there in the early stages of, of their development. And in that mystical mystery religion, the way that you entered into fellowship with the god was that you drank wine. And hopefully the god would, if you drank enough wine, the god would enter into you and he would speak through you. And the Maynads would have these glossolalic utterances. So tongues is also a uh, interesting background into all of this. But wine was the way you got close to God. Now, some of you want to say amen there. I know it. Wine was how you got close to God. It's an instrument. And what Paul is saying here is wine isn't the way to get close to God or to grow spiritually. It's through the relationship by means of the Holy Spirit. Same thing he said over in Ephesians, I mean over in Galatians 5.16, related to walk by means of the Spirit. So when you look at this passage, he's talking about how the walk is going to be produced. Because when you go back to chapter 4 and you read through all of the different characteristics of the Christian life, especially forgiveness, forgiving other people as, as Christ forgave us, we look at that and we say, that's impossible. I can't do that. You're right. You can't do that. You can do it through God the Holy Spirit, but you can't do it in the power of the flesh. There's got to be a supernatural way through the, through the help, through the aid of the Holy Spirit to produce that. That's why love is the first part of the uh, list of the fruit of the Spirit. And so he's describing that, that walk. We are to be filled by the Spirit. Now, Galatians 4.17, which is just what immediately, or not 4.17, yeah, 4.17, not 5.17, 4.17, he says, This I say, therefore, testifying the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. He's talking about how Christian life is going to differ. It's going to differ in the futility of their mind, first place it's going to differ is it's going to make a difference in how you think. Christianity is about thinking. It's not about emoting. It's not about feeling good. It's not about experiencing worship on Sunday morning. It's not about all these things that our shallow, superficial, simpering little Christian churches are doing today. It's about thought. It's about thinking in a way that changes the way you live. Uh, Paul says in 5.8, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Trouble is, they're still walking the old way. See, walking in darkness is walking like the Gentiles walk, like the pagan culture walked, living the same way where there's no discernible difference. But now you're, you're light in the Lord positionally, so you need to make your experience conform to your position. That's why he says, walk as children of light. Now, what we have here in this part of Ephesians is a contrast between two different states of living. You're either walking in darkness or walking in the light. That's where uh, John picks that up and uses that same imagery in First John, in First John chapter. Uh, chapter 1, he says in 1 John 1, 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So walking in the light is related to fellowship. Walking in the darkness is not walking in fellowship. They're viewed as two mutually exclusive Spheres, two mutually exclusive ways of living. When you get down to verse uh, verse 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. You're not partially foolish and partially wise. It's one or the other. And that continues down into verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. So wisdom is understanding God's will, which is understanding God's word. So it's able to take the data from Scripture that you have internalized and absorbed into your soul, and as you've taken that 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 Scripture, God the Holy Spirit then is going to be able to take that and put it together in different ways to meet the necessities of different situations in life. So that application flows from that. Application doesn't flow from a pastor coming up with five artificial examples of application and then building his sermon around them, which is what happens in, in many places. That just doesn't help. It, it, it creates a superficial approach to Christianity. In fact, it divorces it from doctrine, and you end up with just a moral ethical system where Christianity is do this, do this, do this, and do this, and don't do this, don't do this, and don't do this. That's just another form of legalism, and there's no undergirding rationale or thought system that informs a person's whole decision-making process in life. So it's fools versus wise, unwise versus those who have understanding, and those who try to get close to God through wine, and those who get close to God by means of the Holy Spirit. So when we look at Ephesians 5.18, we're told, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Spirit. That's how we should translate that. And the results are then given in the next verses. It has to do with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's singing praise to God, uh, thankfulness in, uh, in our souls to God, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another. Now, what does that actually mean to submit to one another? Does that mean that we're going to take this in some sort of hyper-literal legalistic way and we're all going to run around and see how we can be submissive to one another and we're going to bow down and bow and scrape to one another? No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about using what we used to call common sense, but I think common sense is a product of wisdom in the soul, and so without doctrine you don't have it. It has to do with the fact that you're not going to operate in arrogance toward people. You're going to operate in humility, and you're not going to, you know, push your agenda and steamroll over, over other people just to get your way. When you con- contrast or compare Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16, which we did briefly at, right at the close last time, very quick way, we see that the command in Colossians 3.16 is to let the word of Christ dwell in, in you richly in all wisdom. Wisdom there is application of doctrine. Teaching and admonishing one another, a result. In Psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, another result. Somehow an extra AL slipped in there. I just copied that from a text. Uh, That's a computer problem. I won't take ownership. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So you have the same results, different commands. So if doing this produces these results and doing this produces the same results, then your two commands to be filled by means of the Spirit, which is instrument. How? What do you use to grow spiritually? It's done by means of the Holy Spirit. But what fills you? What fills you, the content, is the Word of God. So you see the connection between the two by comparing these verses. It's the Spirit of God with the Word of God. It's not the Spirit of God operating apart from the Word of God. That's mysticism. It's not the Word of God operating apart from the Spirit of God. That's legalism. It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God tied together. And when you study that, there's a, when you study the Word, learn the Word, while you're in fellowship, the Holy Spirit uses that to challenge us to produce growth in our life. You can use a gardening um, illustration. You go out in the garden, you water your plants. They need water and they need nitrogen, so you put manure on your, on your plants or you put uh, man-made fertilizer on your plants. And so they have food and they have water. But something happens. You go out there. This happens to me a lot this type of time of year. I forget to water my potted plants, which I have to do every morning. 
I have to go out there and make sure everything gets soaked down. If I don't, I come out there at, at 12 o'clock, and they're all wilted and hanging over the side of the plant looking like they're about ready to give up whatever ghosts they have. They're, they're just short of dying. And I water them, and I come back an hour later, and something has happened, and they're all standing up looking happy and growing. But that, that has to do with whatever God built into the dynamics, the metabolism of the plants so that as they absorb the nutrition, there's something God built in there that that in turn produces certain chemical reactions that produce growth and produce eventually produce the seeds and the fruit of, of the plant. The same thing is what happens in each of us as believers. Volitionally, we have the responsibility to take in the nourishment of the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in fellowship. And as that comes into our soul, it's at that point that the Holy Spirit takes over. And we don't know how it happens. We can't take out our magnifying glass and, and uh, look, examine it that way. The scriptures don't go into those details. But as the Word of God comes in through the Spirit of God, he then takes that and produces uh, and, and uses that to impact the way we think, to bring things to our mind, to produce spiritual growth over time. We can't volitionally produce the growth. We can only produce the feeding of our souls, and that produces the growth through the Holy Spirit. He's the one who produces that. And as a result of that growth, then, what accumulates in our soul is this, is this pool of, of data that becomes the, 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 the foundation, the elements of wisdom as God the Holy Spirit takes that and puts it together. And what comes out as we apply that is the beauty and the skill of spiritual growth. Now, I want to close with an illustration that is familiar to most of you. And this is used to be the top and bottom circle, but <clears throat> I became a heretic, and now we have a left and right circle. We have on the one side eternal realities and on the other side temporal realities. The eternal realities have to do with our position in Christ. We, how do we walk? As children of light. That's why it's a white circle and a dark background. Our position is, in, is children of light. And so we have all of these things that are ours in Christ. We get identified with his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are entered into him by means of God the Holy Spirit. And we have all these things that are true. We're reconciled. Uh, we're redeemed. We're regenerated. Uh, we're adopted into God's royal family. All of these things. We're a new creature in Christ. We're freed from sin. This is all ours positionally. We have new life. We're sealed by means of God the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. That is all true of us as our position in Christ. And that's Paul explains most of that in the first part of Ephesians. But then we have an experiential reality, our day-to-day -day life. The white circle represents walking in the light experientially, where, and at the same time we're filled by the Spirit. They're just different ways of talking about the same thing. When we're first saved, we're walking in the uh, we're filled with the Spirit. We're walking in the light, walking by means of the Holy Spirit. But we can sin. And as soon as we sin, we're out of that circle. We're no longer walking in the light. We're walking in darkness. And the sin nature, the flesh, is what energizes. Paul says, walk by means of the Holy Spirit. You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But when you stop walking by the Spirit, then the flesh takes over. That's our default position. And so then we have to uh, confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9. We're back in fellowship. And when we're walking in that circle, that is when the Holy Spirit can produce growth. And as part of that growth, that it, it impacts the way we relate to other people in the body of Christ because we realize they're not any different than we are. We're both obnoxious sinners in the sight of God, but God has saved us and he's transforming us by the Holy Spirit. So then we have a code of conduct 
that is to characterize our relationship with other believers, whether we know them or not. That's why we use the term sometimes impersonal love. We don't even have to know who they are or what their name is. We know they're another believer in Christ, and so this defines and describes how we are to relate to them. So all of this is related to understanding the whole concept of submitting to one another in Ephesians 5:21 and this in, uh, affects our most our, our most uh, intimate relationships. Wives are to be submissive to the husbands, husbands are supposed to be submissive to the Lord. Children are submissive to parents, servants to masters. This is the application Paul makes in the rest of Ephesians 5. All of it flows out of following the command to be filled by the Spirit. First Peter 5, 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That's the issue in submission. It's not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think because God resists or stands against the proud or the arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. Arrogance stops your Christian life, your Christian growth, not your Christian life, your Christian growth, but humility is essential to spiritual growth. Now, the 17th point is one that comes out of the verse we've been studying to begin with. We'll start with that next time in Hebrews 10.24, and then we will just about, I think, come up. No, we have one other great passage to get into, and that deals with the passages in James 5 to confess our sins to one another. So everybody get ready. No, just kidding. We'll have to find out what that's all about. Now, that's a fun passage. In James chapter 5, confessing to one another and praying for one another. So we'll get into that uh, next Thursday night. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to study these things, to be challenged by the truth of your word, and to recognize that uh, we're nothing apart from Jesus Christ. We're nothing apart from your grace, and that is true for every single one of us. And so your grace and your love, your forgiveness, your kindness should be characteristic of how we uh, relate to one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.